Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Michael Suarez. I'm the director of Rare Book School, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to this, the sixth and final lecture in our 2017 summer lecture series. Our speaker this afternoon, Dr. Christine Ferdinand, is Emeritus Fellow of Maudlin College, Oxford. A native of Bakersfield, California, she earned her BA in English Literature from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and then two master's degrees in English Literature and in Library Science from the University of Iowa. She then crossed the Atlantic to earn her third advanced degree, this time in bibliography and textual criticism at the University of Leeds. Dr. Ferdinand worked with considerable success in the rare books department at the British Library before earning her DPhil, that's a PhD driving on the wrong side of the road, before earning her DPhil from Oxford University in 1990. Her doctoral thesis on the interconnections among 18th century newspapers and the book trade led to a two-year postdoctoral appointment as a Lever-Hume Research Fellow on the History of the Book in Britain project. She was elected Fellow Librarian of Maudlin College in 1992, a position she then went on to hold for nearly 25 years. Dr. Ferdinand is perhaps best known in the United States for her pioneering book, Benjamin Collins and the 18th Century Provincial Newspaper Trade, Oxford University Press, 1997, which established her as the expert on provincial newspapers and their relation to book advertising, distribution, and consumption. Among her scholarly uh, publications are contributions to the Cambridge History of the Book in Britain, Volume 5, the Cambridge History of Libraries in Britain, Reconstructing the Book, Literary Texts in Transmission, and to the forthcoming collection, Balancing the Books, Financing the Book Trade from the 16th Century On. A stalwart citizen of the bibliographical community, Dr. Ferdinand served as president of the Bibliographical Society from 2012 to 2014 and has recently been elected a fellow of the Society of Antiquaries. This, let me translate, is a big deal. <laughs> but none of these achievements begin to tell the story of the role that Christine Ferdinand played in Oxford for more than 25 years. In a forbidding world of bibliography dominated mostly by men, Christine Ferdinand became the presence of a gracious humanity, and she became the gateway particularly for many women to be able to enter the field. Similarly, as a fellow at Maudlin College, Oxford, a world well dominated by formality that has put off many. Christine Ferdinand as tutor for women, 
and as a moral tutor, which has nothing to do with morals, but rather as one charged with the welfare of undergraduates, gave for many years extremely generously of her time and talent in order to help young women scholars at Oxford thrive. In my view, the humanity that she's brought to the study of the book, the graciousness that she brought to her time as president of the Bibliographical Society, in addition to the marvelous scholarly work that she has done and continues to do, has made her an important model for many women, those who went on to scholarly careers and librarian careers and those who did not. Her achievements are many, but it is her humanity, in my view, that has been transformative. I am pleased to counter my dear friend, and I introduce to you today Dr. Christine Ferdinand. Michael, thank you so much for that introduction. I hardly recognize myself, but um, um, and thank you for inviting me here. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here, and thank you to your staff. I must say especially Jeremy DeBell, who has made this so easy. I mean, answering every question, making all the arrangements, uh, it's been very good. And I am so honored that Terry Bellinger is here. I met Terry... Um, in the 1970s when I was at the Institute of Bibliography and Textual Criticism. And I have to say, I'm still smarting from that. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, let me talk about James Rivington now. Um, I've printed this in such big type that I'm hoping I can read it without my glasses, but I am retired and I've gotten to an age where I may have to put the glasses on and look at you over them. Um, when James Rivington died, he left behind an impressive legacy. It is likely that he transformed the transatlantic book trade and revolutionized bookselling in revolutionary America. Um, he showed a great flair for entrepreneurship, uh, setting up bookshops in three of the most populous uh, towns in America and possibly in Bermuda in the 1760s. His survival skills were above average. When things got too hot in London, he engineered a bankruptcy and moved to New York. When insolvency loomed in the 1760s, he married a wealthy widow. He reopened his bookshop and he set up a newspaper. After the Sons of Liberty smashed up his printing office and stole his type to make bullets, he moved back to London for a while and returned to New York to reestablish his newspaper with a provocative new name. It had been the Gazetteer, and now it became the Loyal Gazette and then the Royal Gazette. Unusually for a loyalist, he managed to stay on in New York after it was evacuated by the British troops, and that was probably because he had been one of George Washington's spies. Now, I discovered Rivington when I was working on a much bigger project to investigate bankruptcy in the 18th century book trade. Now, when I started out, I expected that I would uncover patterns of behavior that might lead to financial failure in the trade, and I hoped that I could figure out what happened not just when the big names in the trade failed, 
But when the lesser figures, like the bookbinders or the people that sold the uh, newspaper in the streets, um, ended up in jail. But there were problems. Those at the lower end of the trade who did not qualify for bankruptcy in England because they could not technically be defined as tradesmen and were forced to pay for their debts with time in prison are so poorly documented, as far as I could discern, that they cannot easily be studied. Documentation is a problem even for the better-known bankrupts. Yay, it worked. Um, I'm going to put my glasses on and look at you over there. Um, because the official records are so laconic. Now, the first official evidence of bankruptcy is when a commission is set up, and you can see from the docket books here that you don't really get a lot of information. Uh, there's a date, the bankrupt's name, address, and trade, the commissioner's names, and in Francis Cogan's case, the name of one of his creditors. Uh, the proceedings were concluded with a certificate of conformity or a certificate of bankruptcy, which, as you can see, offers even less information, just the date and the name, address, and trade of the bankrupt. The whole process had to be officially advertised, so similar information can be found in the London Gazette, but that's about it. Now, I was compelled, therefore, to concentrate on big-name bankrupts where I could find evidence outside these rather dry official records. So I ended up with a series of case studies based on external evidence like the Upcott papers in the British Library or the amazing Gosling Bank records um, that are owned by Barclays Bank. Now, a number of the bankrupts I examined had accounts with Gosling, and even better, a few of their bankruptcies were actually administered by the bank, who kept a record of relevant creditors, debtors, and the amounts concerned. The examples I had seemed to demonstrate that practically every bankruptcy was different. Overriding patterns were difficult to discover, although I did learn that certain practices were risky. More than one of my booksellers probably did run into trouble after over-optimistically investing in expensive multi-volume editions on their own. Richard Chandler did this. So did Moses Pitt at the end of the 17th century, who collapsed under the weight of his English atlas, which was planned to be 900 pages of text, 600 plates, and 11 volumes. And he never quite got there. Now, projects like those are safer when the risks are shared by a group of publishers or costs are covered up front by subscribers. Others, like George Kearsley, who published The Notorious North Britain and was happy to help John Wilkes find an engraver for a pornographic frontispiece, which I've never been able to find, um, got into trouble with the law for other reasons. Okay. Oh, sorry, I've, I've missed... One, let's see, this is, okay, yeah, so we, we, that was just Caesar Ward's um, uh, bankruptcy uh, administration in the Gosling bank records. Um, anyway, I just included this Hogarth print because it shows you what kind of trouble a John Wilkes might get you into. So as Caesar Ward was brought down by his partner, um, the one common factor is that the prevailing system of extended credit for goods led tradesmen of all kinds into bankruptcy. And bankruptcy affected different booksellers in different ways. Chandler shot himself when he realized he was about to fail. John Bew cut his own throat with a case knife after going through the process. Caesar Ward worked for years to repay the debts Chandler had incurred, 
But he also, interesting, um, sees the opportunity to change careers. His wife, Anne, took over the bookselling and newspaper business, and Caesar became an antiquary. He wrote with great enthusiasm about the fun he had digging through collections of papers and cramped garrets, so I suspect it's something he'd always wanted to do. George Kearsley resumed trade after its first bankruptcy, but then failed again in the 1780s. Now, James Rivington was amazingly successful with popular multi-volume editions of Smollett's History of England, but he took other risks that led him into a bankruptcy that he probably engineered for himself in London in 1760, and then near insolvency in New York a few years later. He almost literally bounced back um, from these events, but his luck failed him decades later, and he spent the last few years of his life in jail. Now, I'm writing up what I discovered during this research, But I'm concentrating now on James Rivington because he's simply the most interesting of my case studies for all the reasons I set out in my preamble. Even better, he left evidence all over the Anglo-American world from letters he wrote to American booksellers when he was trying to corner the colonial market to his accounts in the Gosling Bank archives to chancery lawsuits in the National Archives at Kew to archives and handsome portraits now in the New York Historical Society to a letter about a racehorse uh, in the Library of Congress, to 10 years of his own newspaper as well as advertisements and stories in lots of other colonial papers, to other useful documents found in numerous U.S. archives. And he's, he's a biographer's <coughs> dream. Now, oh gosh, these are mixed up. I'm really sorry about that. Okay, now I hope that some of you know Private Eye. Are there any English people? Okay, this is a private eye joke. Um, That's, um, well, the actor who's playing, um, James Rivington, in the AMC television series Turn, uh, and then that's a portrait of uh, James Rivington. And the joke is that private eye usually can't tell which is which, and so they get the captions mixed up. Yeah. Okay, sorry. I thought there might be more. Angle files here. <laughs> Last week there were more. This week they're not very bright. Oh, okay. Okay, thanks. Okay. So he's, James Rivington has already been noticed, um, appearing in books about George Washington's spies and even in this AMC television series I mentioned. He's not very well understood, though, um, at least in the books whose authors concentrate on his role as a spy. I mean, for example, one of the authors talked about James Rivington as a young man getting totally bored with his job in a bookseller shop, and so he decides to go off to the colonies, and you'll find that that's not quite true. But I have to give full credit to Leroy Hewlett, who wrote a fine, a really fine PhD biography of Rivington in 1965, and much of what I know about Rivington comes from Hewlett, and he certainly steered my research in good directions. Now, James Rivington had an auspicious beginning, there we go. Okay. Um, his, I added this at the last minute and I put it in the wrong place. That's his father. He was born in 1724, the son of Charles Rivington, the patriarch of the great bookselling Rivington family, and Eleanor Pease of Newcastle upon Time, who I suppose is the great matriarch of the uh, uh, Rivington bookselling family. Now, James was their ninth child and sixth son. He was apprenticed in 1739 to his father, whose speciality was was publishing religious material, although his greatest success was probably investing in his friend Samuel Richardson's novel, Pamela, in 1741. 
James was turned over to his older brother John when their father died suddenly uh, in 1742. He was freed by patrimony the 3rd of December, 1745. John and James inherited equal shares in their father's bookselling business, although John had greater control over finances until James's majority. They also inherited the connections their father had forged with other successful members of the book trade. After James became free of the stationer's company, the two brothers traded from St. Paul's Churchyard under the partnership name of J. and J. Rivington. Although they were brothers and business partners, even a cursory investigation of James's early career suggests that he might not naturally share his elder brother's interest in developing the established theological side of the trade, but might be inclined to follow other paths. He was already showing signs of diverging entrepreneurial behavior in the early 1750s. The Rivington Partnership, along with James Leake and Bath, held the copyright to James Harvey's book, Meditations and Contemplations, or Meditations Among the Tombs. It was a popular work that invited piracy, including in the American colonies. Two were published in 1750, One in Boston, printed and sold by Daniel Fowle in Queen Street and Daniel Gookin in Marlborough Street, and another in Philadelphia that was reprinted and sold by William Bradford at the Sign of the Bible in Second Street. You can see the similarities there. Um, now, when James learned of this, he was still in London. He wrote a characteristically smarmy... Is that an American word? Oh, good. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I've lived in England for such a long time. But interesting letter to Bradford, who had visited the Rivingtons in London in the 1740s and already had an account with them. And there were probably other similar letters, but this is the only one I've been able to track down. Now, implying that he was the senior Rivington partner and pretending that he had no idea Bradford had illegally reprinted the meditations, he offered to negotiate various deals with the Philadelphian bookseller. So, sending over legal copies of the meditations at a discount, supplying him with discounted copies of a new James Harvey book they were planning to publish, or supplying Bradford with a constant supply of UK printed books. Rivington's early dealings with David Hall, Benjamin Franklin's former journeyman and successor to uh, and successor and William Strawn's partner in Philadelphia, sheds. Um, additional light on Rivington's aggressive strategy for securing as much of the colonial trade as possible. Now, these are revealed in Hall's correspondence with William Strawn, preserved in the American Philosophical Society archives. By the time Rivington began courting Hall's business, he had been married to Elizabeth Minsell for about five years, and his partnership with his brother John had been dissolved by mutual consent early in 1756. Very soon after this, James formed a new partnership with the Oxford uh, bookseller James Fletcher, and this time Rivington clearly was a senior partner. Let's see if the right one comes up. Okay. Now, Rivington would have known full well that William Strawn was David Hall's main London supplier, but that didn't stop him from trying to undersell not only Strawn, but every other London bookseller who was sending books and stationery to America. He sowed doubts about the others, insinuating that they were deliberately overcharging the colonists, and he was probably right. And he suggested that he could supply more and better material at lower prices, and he appeared to be able to do this through various strategies. 
As an indignant Strawn explained to Hall, Rivington was probably selling some books as lost leaders, that is, at less than their wholesale cost. And his shipments of books probably were supplemented with junk books that hadn't been ordered and that Rivington hadn't been able to shift in London. Hall complained about that later, as well as about receiving incomplete multi-volume sets from um, Rivington. The most audacious part of his strategy to hijack the transatlantic trade was the sale of cheap Scottish reprints, which is to say pirated books. Not just any pirated books, though. Rivington had owned shares in a number of titles which he sold at a successful trade sale uh, in 1757. His brother John and a number of other important publishers were among the purchasers. Though he no longer had a right to publish those titles, Rivington, as Strawn explained, quote, went to Scotland last summer, 1758, and said all the presses there are going with English books. Dykes's dictionary is now printing for him at Aberdeen, which is the sole property of one Mrs. Ware, a widow with seven children. Barclay's dictionary at Edinburgh by Hamilton and Balfour, in which his own brother had a large share. Harvey's Meditations, the property of which he sold two years ago, he is printing somewhere in the country. Riddiman's Rudiments, he has now lately printed here in London, the property of old Thomas Riddiman's widow, who is now prosecuting him for it, as are also the company of stationers for printing their psalters and the proprietors of Watts's works for printing his psalms and hymns. So that is how he was able to undercut his London competitors. It has to be said that in the process, maybe he anticipated changes to copyright laws and forced colonial booksellers to question the practices of the more sophisticated London book trade. So by 1760, he had antagonized his London colleagues, provoked the stationer's company to sue him in Chancery Court, run up some debts, and had developed by then a difficult relationship with his new partner, James Fletcher. But he had also established a network of contacts in America. It was time to move on, but he had been planning for that. So that's 1760 when he's thinking of leaving. But evidence suggests that in early 1758, he was buying property in New York, soon after selling off his literary shares. A couple of years later, a commission of bankruptcy was taken out against him in London, and Strawn rejoiced in Rivington's apparent downfall. But despite appearances, it is more than likely that Rivington engineered his own bankruptcy in 1760. Isaiah Thomas, the 19th century historian of printing in early America, thought so, and so do I. Thomas's assumption was based on information quote, received from one of his assignees by a gentleman and passed on to Isaiah Thomas, who writes that, quote, Rivington eventually paid his creditors 20 shillings in the pound and had something left. Well, there are 20 shillings in the pound, so Rivington's creditors got 100% of what they were owed, which is an unusual outcome in a bankruptcy case. Well, he certainly owed a great deal then, even though he had made a relative fortune from Tobias Smollett's history. His and his partner Fletcher's bankruptcies, fortunately, are set out in the Gosling Bank ledgers. It's difficult to interpret the Rivington-Fletcher bankruptcy accounts in this respect, but it is safe to say that the amounts to be settled were numerous and they were often very large. Conversely, there were also numerous debts owed to Rivington and his partner, which started coming in even before the commission began its work of settling his debts. Now, the usual conclusion to official bankruptcy was that, that certificate of conformity, 
that allowed the bankrupt to resume business after arranging to pay off a percentage of his debts. Well, there's a certificate for James Fletcher, his partner, but there was none for James Rivington. So that supports Isaiah Thomas's theory. The act of simply starting bankruptcy procedures seems to have allowed Rivington the freedom to leave the country with his wife and to set up shop with a good stock of books in New York, which is what he did in September 1760. He did not leave his confidence behind. Rather, he annoyed his new colleagues by boasting of his London know-how, denigrating their professionalism, and undercutting their sales. An early altercation with the Philadelphia bookseller William Dunlap is recorded by David Hall. This is a quote. Rivington sent for Mr. Dunlap to his house and used him, as he told me, very ill for publishing the within advertisement, alleging he had made use of some of his words in an ironical way told him it was true he had run out a good deal of money in England and was now come here to endeavor to better his fortune. Dunlap replied that he thought he had set out in a very impudent manner, publishing an advertisement by which he ascribed all the knowledge in the book way to himself and making everyone else on the continent in that way quite ignorant, which he might expect would not be put up with. Upon which Rivington said, there never was a bookseller on the continent till he came, that we knew nothing about books, nor the prices of them, and that those we had dealt with kept us quite in the dark as to the real prices of the books we had from them and picked our pockets most abominably. Mr. Dunlap answered that if what he said was true, the booksellers we had dealt with were a parcel of rogues and he himself one of the greatest of them, as we had all dealt with him and had paid him to a farthing, and upon this they parted after a good many high words." Well, within a couple of years, Rivington had set up shops in New York, Boston, and Philadelphia and advertised in 1764 that he was about to open an office in Bermuda. Now, I don't know if the Bermuda adventure ever really happened. We hear nothing more about it, and I'm hoping that Jeremy is going to solve that problem eventually because he's done a lot of work in Bermuda. So, Rivington's first wife died in 1767, not in New York, but in Manchester, England. Now, by then, he was in serious financial trouble again, evidently exacerbated by his losses in the Maryland lottery. And this was a land-selling scheme that gave him the opportunity to offload surplus stock as some of the lesser lottery prizes. And he was also hurt by the non-importation agreements that made it difficult for him to import goods, including books from England. In June, Strawn wrote, that, quote, J. Rivington, I find, is gone to pieces with you, an event which I wonder did not happen sooner. He owes a vast deal of money here in London, but as those who gave him credit knew whom they trusted, nobody pities them. So Rivington called in his Philadelphia debts in June 1767 and advertised the sale of his stock there the following April. He moved out of his house and office in Hanover Square, New York, in the same month. In October 1768, a meeting was called by order of the New York Provincial Supreme Court upon the petition of James Rivington, an insolvent debtor and sundry of his creditors. Now, this was a serious business. America did not have the relatively humane bankruptcy laws that England had. Usually, the debtor's only options were a private settlement with all his creditors or jail. Characteristically, Rivington came up with another option marrying a wealthy widow. Now, after he married Elizabeth, Elizabeth Van Horn in March 6, 1769, James Parker reported to Benjamin Franklin 
Tis said Rivington having married one of Van Horns, one of the Van Horns is now in affluent circumstances and intends to shine away in the bookway, though such tyrants hurt themselves and others too. At any rate, after this, Rivington was able to settle into a bookselling career in life in New York that appeared to be a bit less controversial. I'm going to skip a little bit so I can keep to time. His new wife's wealth seems to have also enabled him not just to shine away in the bookway, but to branch out into the newspaper trade. In 1773, he began publishing Rivington's New York Gazetteer. Now, setting up a periodical publication was generally considered a sensible business move for a bookseller printer, for a newspaper could be expected to provide not only a regular income through subscriptions and advertisements, but was also a good medium for promoting the proprietor's own products. So he adopted a politically neutral position. At first, he called his paper, uh, he said that his paper was printed at his open and uninfluenced press, but it became increasingly Tory as the War of Independence progressed. The paper's masthead originally featured an innocuous woodcut of a ship in full sail. With the issue of the 10th of November, 1774, the ship gave way to the Royal Coat of Arms, and then he dropped the open and uninfluenced from his imprint. He attracted and he even seemed to relish the wrath of the patriots. Um, so the Sons of Liberty attacked his printing office more than once. In December 1774, the Friends of America urged other patriots to boycott Rivington, who was daily, by his conversation, paper, and pamphlets, insulting, reviling, and counteracting this whole continent in the most rancorous and malevolent manner. He was hanged in effigy in New Brunswick, New Jersey, in the spring of 1775 as proof of the detestation in which he is held in this quarter. So, but Rivington, characteristically, responded by reprinting this woodcut of the hanging in his gazetteer, 20th of April. Um, and, and he called his tormentors lower-class inhabitants, little shabby piddling politicians, and snarling curs. And about the same time, though, he was appointed royal printer. He removed to England in relative safe, safety in 1776, but returned the following year, flaunting the new title. The gazetteer had been suspended while he was away, but when the, within a few weeks of its reappearance, um, it became Rivington's New York Loyal Gazette and then the Royal Gazette. Like so many others in America then, James Rivington did whatever he had to do to survive what was essentially a civil war. I believe he was a loyalist at heart, although probably not so extreme as his newspaper came to suggest. He started from a pragmatically neutral position, hoping for trade from both sides, but he shifted as the conflict became more intense. When he believed that the British who occupied New York during much of the war were in the ascendant, he was bold in attacking the Patriots or printing fake news to support the Loyalist effort. At one point, though, he printed an apology for that, and he signed the General Association, probably in hopes of regaining more of the Patriot business, but it didn't work. So his main trade throughout this period included printing, publishing, and the sale of books and a variety of other goods. Um, he was apolitical in his printing whenever he could be. Um, printing for both sides, but the bulk of his work was for the British. Many loyalists left New York after the Treaty of Paris in September 1783 and the final evacuation of British troops a couple of months later, heading for the Caribbean or Canada or back to England. 
And Rivington's Gazette did not long survive the peace. The last issue appeared on the last day of 1783, and he advertised his printing stock for sale in 1784. Um, he continued to live and work in New York, although he was viewed with deep suspicion by some long-standing patriots, and he was beaten up for a loyalist on at least one occasion. And he was probably he probably stayed in the business, but as a silent partner in another newspaper. He became one of the founding members of the St. George's Society of New York. And that is a subscription society uh, exclusively for Englishmen living in New York. He continued to sell his patent medicines, jewelry, plate, books, etc. Um, by 1793, he and his son James Jr. formed a partnership with Frederick Jay, auctioneer and younger brother of John Jay. Um, Rivington and Jay auctioned real estate and they sold merchandise. Hewlett has found evidence that Rivington also ran a farm in the 1790s. The census of 1790 suggests that his life in New York was probably a relatively comfortable one with a household consisting of three free white males over the age of 16, two under 16, three white females, and eight slaves. And New York still had slaves, but that's a relatively large number even for New York. His second wife died in 1795, and this time there was no wealthy widow waiting in the wings. Aside from the debts he himself had accrued, he also discovered that he was legally responsible for claims against the property of James Delancey, who had earlier fled from New York for England. Deeply in debt, and less financially nimble later in his life, Rivington finally landed in debtor's prison in January 1797. Five months later, on the 8th of May, he wrote a rather forlorn letter to a Mr. Banyar, probably fellow Englishman Goldsboro Banyar Sr. Rivington begins with the observation that he is, quote, doomed at an advanced age of life to a close confinement for debts of large amounts on behalf of others. But he's interested in Banyar's help in recovering a relatively small debt of 11 pounds 13 shillings that was owed him by the Albany or New York Library Society. <laughs> Rivington calculates that with this amount, it would be possible to request Messrs. Webster, the printers, to give full discharge of the demands for goods sent the 3rd of December, 1795, a period of 29 months with interest. He adds at the end that, little did I apprehend I should be obliged to address you in a state of great exigency from the common jail of a city in which I have passed upwards of six and thirty happy years and am now reduced to real penury. He evidently had little success paying off those printers since several months later he was still trying to negotiate with the Webster brothers over a debt owed him by a Mr. Patterson. But these few letters demonstrate how complicated and interconnected these um, credit-based networks were. One of Rivington's other creditors was Charles Dilly for 600 pounds, almost certainly the bookseller in London with whom Rivington had published at least one book. Now, when Dilly failed to pursue his suit for repayment against Rivington, the Chief Justice of New York ordered his release from prison in October 1798. But Rivington found himself in the same predicament as so many thousands of other insolvent debtors, he could not be released so long as any one of his creditors failed to cooperate. So the New York Historical Society holds the records of a number of other creditors who were willing over the years to discharge Rivington from the debts he owed them. These included the Bank of the United States, the New York merchant John Livingston, uh, the attorney and former librarian of the New York Society Library, um, Isaac Kipp, 
His former partner, Frederick J., to whom Rivington and his son owed 20,000 pounds. Um, orders for release followed on each of these discharges, but Rivington remained in jail until all his accounts were settled, one way or another. That took more than four years, until February 1801. Rivington died in poverty on the 4th of July, 1802. He was nearly 78. Now, while he may have died in poverty, James Rivington left that important legacy. And to remind you, he probably transformed the 18th century transatlantic book trade. He may have outraged his London colleagues with his unprecedented discounts and unconventional tactics, but he almost certainly helped bring wholesale book prices down and the volume of trade up. Although his book piracies were illegal under copyright laws in the 1750s and 60s, it's fair to say that he anticipated imminent changes to those laws. Meanwhile, he was able to undersell the law-abiding Londoners with lower-priced Scottish printed titles. And I think the young American book trade benefited from that. He brought innovation and professionalism to the colonial book trade. No doubt he outraged booksellers in America too when he moved his operations there, but they learned to offer a more professional service in order to compete with a London bookseller who really did know his trade. He offered a good and large supply of the very latest books and magazines, a newspaper after 1773, patent medicines, and a wide variety of other imported merchandise. He was never afraid to take risks, and even if his schemes didn't always work, such as setting up franchises in three or four widespread locations, he became famous or notorious throughout the colonies. He manipulated his first bankruptcy into a new life in America. He handily survived a second encounter with insolvency in the mid-1760s, renewing his bookselling business thereafter and expanding into the newspaper trade. His debts finally defeated him in the 1790s, and he first set foot in a debtor's prison when he was 72. He might be viewed as a hero, though, from both sides of the American Revolution. The loyalist who bravely kept his Royal Gazette in print through much of the turmoil and founder member of the St. George's Society of New York or the undercover agent who helped the Patriots win the war and, choose to con and chose to continue his life in America after that. Rivington Street in Lower Manhattan, not far from Rivington's first bookshop, commemorates his legacy. Thank you. So I, I realize I'm standing before an audience uh, that probably includes people who know a lot more about the American Revolution than I do, and probably a lot more about the Rivingtons. But I'm I'm happy to attempt to answer questions if there are, if there are any, or if you have some ideas, you know, on on Bermuda or where to go from here. Stunned into silence. Oh, good. <laughs> Well, um, his his father was a bookseller, and he was apprenticed to his father, and that that was the usual course, I think. Um, his father Charles though, was the first one of the Rivingtons to be in the in the book trade. James's grandfather, or Charles's father, was was a butcher up in Derbyshire. And the, the, the first son, called Thurston Rivington, um, was uh, apprenticed to the father, probably, and, and pursued the butcher's trade. And then uh, James Rivington was sent down to London when he was 14 
to be, uh, Charles Rubinger was sent down to London in 1714, to be an apprentice to Emmanuel Matthews, who's, who's described at first as a bookbinder, but clearly later on went on to become a publisher. And so Emmanuel Matthews was very interested when he did publish books um, in publishing religious books, and that might have either encouraged something that Charles already had within him or inspired him to, to follow uh, the religious book trade. There's also a theory that um, their father was a butcher. He's apprenticed to a bookbinder in London. Binders use a lot of leather, you know, so the, the offcuts you know, the, the, uh, on the periphery of, of, of a butcher's trade. I'm not sure that, that that holds much water. But anyway, so, so then, sorry, he was, he was then turned, the father was then turned over to Onsham Churchill, was a much bigger deal bookseller. And so he decided to, to stick in the book trade. His, his brother, his older brother Thurston died at, at exactly the right time, I think leaving him plenty of money. So Charles was able to, to buy into a bookshop, Richard Chiswell's bookshop, and then pursue it. And that's, that's why he put his sons into the trade. Terry. I think it might be worth mentioning that the London side continued to prosper. It did indeed. Uh, and for a very long time, in part, I think, because every generation had so many children, <clears throat> so that, as it were, you could put primus on the land and mm -hmm. secundus into the army and yeah. tertius into uh, religion. Yeah, no, that's worth mentioning that the history of the Rivington firm was written by Septimus Rivington. That's correct. Yeah, no, that that is correct. That is, it's a it's a long-standing family firm. For the relationship between uh, your James and the London family, or did they decide? Oh no, um, there there is a further relationship. He gave his brother John power of attorney later on to help him when he was trying to settle some debts in London. So they were on speaking terms. Um, there's a lot more for me to discover. I mean, almost every archive I look in has something, has something new. Um, but I haven't found any fond letters between the two of them. I think, that, I think according to Septimus Rivington, the, in the recent uh, history of the family firm, um, he suggests that the, the two of them, John and James, did not get along. And I can believe that. You know, that they just seem to be two completely different personalities. Um, so, but but he they, they were reconciled enough that James used John to get some work done for him in London. But but you're right. It, it, it's the there are still Rivingtons. I gave a talk at Stationers Hall, and there were two Rivingtons sitting in the audience. You know, it's a bit a bit disconcerting. Uh, yes. Um, well, the, yeah, it was after the insolvency, the insolvency in America, the near insolvency before he married the wealthy widow, that was in the mid-1760s. He started the newspaper in 1773. Um, and he did at first, you know, start out being neutral. And he printed, you know, printed some of Alexander Hamilton's first pamphlets. Um, so he was printing both sides. But then, you know, when the British started occupying uh, New York, he became much, much more loyalist. And... He supported, he supported that cause, at least through his newspaper, even though he might have been spying for, for George Washington at, at the same time. And I think what would, would happen is the, um, the British would, 
I, I found evidence at once. I'm not sure that this is the, the pattern or explains everything. But um, I have one record of the British sending him a story and asking him to put it in his newspaper. And so this, you know, this was, you know, talking about you know, a terrible defeat for the Patriots, you know, that turned out not to be true. And so he was, he was willing to publish that. I mean, I, I think he probably knew that these stories weren't always true, but it's, it's happening today. <laughs> so there, there's a, there, there are precedents for what we're doing today, but yes? When Thomas Jefferson is buying uh, legal books for, for nephews studying law in the 1790s, he recommends that they buy cheap Irish editions. And I'm wondering if uh, the locus of cheap pirate stuff has changed between the 60s and the 90s from Scotland to Ireland, or whether something else is going on. I think they were both. Okay, they were both. both, yeah, yeah. There's money to be made. Yeah, right? so they're yeah. Be, that's his preference. Right, there are going to be lots of yeah. people trying to invade the market. Yeah, I mean, and James Rivington had connections. I've got, I've got a number of letters between James Rivington and connections in Scotland, so he would naturally gravitate towards Scotland. So I think it depends on, on who you knew. It is true that later on in the century, one of the best bookmen of the later 18th century, Edmund Malone, of course, very well known mm. as an editor of Shakespeare and as the sometime accomplice of Boswell in helping Boswell to get The Life of Johnson written, Malone said that he preferred to buy the Dublin reprints of books originally published in London because they were cheaper so that let him buy more books. But he also regarded them as kind of second corrected editions because he thought that any errors might be corrected in the Dublin reprint even though they were moral piracy. They were strictly piracy because um, the copyright law didn't obtain, mm. but, but, but they, were, they were called moral piracies because they, they were thought to be traducing the, the honor code, such as it was, of the book trade. But Malone favored these Dublin reprints as well, so Jefferson was by no means alone. And I have something else to say about about this, the Scottish reprints. When he was, when James Irvington was sued, talking about the morals of the whole thing, when he was being sued by the Stationers Company, there's this whole account about how he had this. He admits he had these psalms printed in Scotland. They were shipped down to London, and he said he thought that it was okay because he was going to ship them straight to America. But then he said, I suddenly remembered my oath. Uh, you know, not to do that. <laughs> and, and so um, I packed them right up, and you can, the stationer's company can come and watch them being packed up and sent straight back to Scotland. But, uh, <laughs> but he pretended that it was okay to do that, you know, because they were going to go straight off to another country. They weren't going to be sold in London. Can you tell us a little bit about the Gosling's bank accounts? That oh, yeah. And I, I sort of. Central to your research? Yeah. Get that. They're, they're absolutely wonderful. Um, when I first looked at them, um, and this, this is just a page from a bankruptcy account for Caesar Ward, um, and those are you know, the list of creditors and debtors and the amounts paid, and, and they're, they're really amazing. Um, they belong to Barclays Bank, and when I first looked at them, they were in the Barclays Bank basement in Fleet Street, and it was really quite difficult to work there because they, they put me in the basement with these ledgers and it was freezing 
And it was um, it was in the 80s, and so they did have com the computers were down there. These things were clicking and whirring away, and and it was really cool. And they would only bring me another ledger when they had time, because as they said, their business was banking. It's not history. Um, anyway, uh, when I came to look at them, this is when I was doing my DPhil thesis. When I came to look at them again, I phoned uh, Barclays, and they said. This is, you know, we've got our new archives are in a great central location. And I thought, oh, good, you know, this will be so easy. I'll just go to London and look at them. Well, they're in Manchester, in in a business park. Manchester is way up in the north. I mean, not not as far as Scotland or anything, but um, and, and they weren't open on the weekends. But anyway, the, the staff there were, were were great, and I could take lots of pictures. And this is one of them. Um, and it's a great resource because Gosling um, started out in the book trade himself. And then went into banking, and so lots and lots of members of the London Book Trade banked with him. So there are lots of other accounts, but I was, I was so amazed that they administered these bankruptcies that I was looking at. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot more that can be done with, with these, these records. And I think you can see, I don't think you can see the pictures online, but I think there are indexes and so on that are online that if you're interested at all, you can... Where are they now? They're up in Manchester at Barclays Bank Archives, open Monday to Friday during business hours. <laughs> and you really need a car to get there. Um, yeah, they're outside of town in a business park, which is, you know, yeah. Well, please join me in thanking Dr. Please join us for a reception in Rare Book School on Alderman 1. You are all most cordially invited.